Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and good to have you back with us. I will introduce my guest, Jonathan Den Hartog. What a great sounding last name that is. In just a moment, first I want to thank Crossway, as always, sponsoring the program and want to mention a new book by Dane Ortland. I know many listeners out there benefited from, of course, Gentle and Lowly and other books by Dane. This one is 150 Daily Devotions Through the Psalms in the Lord I Take Refuge and could be a good gift for Christmas or maybe something you want to get for yourself. But each reading is short enough to complete in five minutes and encourages believers to thoughtfully ponder and pray through 150 psalms. So the psalms are have often been great fodder for daily devotions, and Dane walks us through those. So thank you to Crossway. Jonathan Den Hartog, welcome to Life and Books and Everything. We are talking about a topic that we didn't know would be so relevant. We uh, Listeners may not know that I, I try to plan out really a semester of interviews several months in advance. So this one has been on the calendar for two, three months now. This is just when it lined up to do this. And I wanted to talk about a book that Jonathan edited with Carl S. Beck, came out in 2019 by University of Missouri. And uh, their Amazon sales are about to go through the roof with this thing. I can just, I'm sure of it. But I really enjoyed the book. And I, I could sense over the summer Hey, this is this is not simply an academic discussion, but this is a live discussion all of a sudden, and uh, even more so now when we're recording this on Monday, November twenty-one. The book is called "Disestablishment and Religious Dissent: Church-State Relations in the New American States, seventeen seventy-six to eighteen thirty-three." So we are going to talk about church establishments and disestablishment. Very exciting for people like us and hopefully a few others. But before we do that, Jonathan, uh, you teach at Samford. Are you from Iowa? Okay, so Yes, tell- indeed. Well, yeah, give us a little bit more background on yourself. Well, so first of all, great to be here. I discovered the podcast very early on in the pandemic. So I will Uh, say I've been a faithful listener uh, since early in season one. Um, Again, come come for the the Midwest content and stay for the the other theological pieces, too. Uh, Yes, grew up in Iowa, as you said, that that Den Hartog name. It is Uh it is Dutch. Uh, We we hail from the central Iowa area. Region so near Pella, Iowa, where I would just put in that that uh, plug. I do think Pella's tulip time is the best. I know that was a conversation that's come up previously. Yeah, it's hard. You um, know, I've been in the Holland one and the Orange City one, so yeah, you'll, you'll have to convince me of that later. Okay, so 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 there, there's a there's a there's a conversation, but again, we know plenty of people uh, who from from Orange City and and Sioux Center that area. Yeah. Uh, but but grew up in in uh, the Pella area. Really appreciated that, especially the uh, Pella Christian High School there. Uh, went to uh, undergrad in Michigan. Did my PhD at University of Notre Dame. Uh, fun fact: I was there at the same time as Thomas Kidd, an earlier oh, guest yeah. this this fall. So we we. We 
overlap there. Uh, then went and was teaching in Minnesota for 13 years, University of Northwestern St. Paul, many good people up there. And then uh, I had the opportunity just uh, three and a half years ago uh, to come down to Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, not what I'd expected, but it's been a real, a real providential blessing to be here. And I'm excited about the school and I'm really glad to be a, a part of the institution. Yeah, that's great. We have some, we always have some folks from our church here or school who are down at Samford and people on our staff from Samford. Beautiful place. How, how, I get this question a lot. So I ask you, how have you liked moving down to the, to the South and in, in Birmingham? I mean, it's, it's the real South. It, it is definitely the, the real South. Um, I think our family would, would say the the weather is very, very different. And as it is seeing lots of snow up north, they're they're appreciating the warmth. And uh, it's definitely been good to ex- explore uh, new uh, new places, new new restaurants. And again, good people down here. Yeah, really good. So, Jonathan, what is your uh, what did you do your Ph.D. on? What's your your history expertise? Right. So my interest is in the revolution and new nation, which these questions really cross those those lines. Uh, and I found myself really drawn to the, the questions of not only how did religion operate in the revolution, right? We talk about, well, how religious were the, some of the founding fathers and uh, what, what role did religion play in the revolution? But then to ask the question, how did that play out once you created a new nation, right? And some of the same people are, are still active, right? So you can see what they're doing in the 1780s, the 1790s, the 1800s. And I thought that was really interesting. So I wrote a dissertation that became my first book. It's called Patriotism and Piety, Federalist Politics and Religious Struggle I've in the New it. American I Nation. I've on my shelf. So I so a couple of th- interesting things going on there, right? So investigating the Federalist Party, who often don't get talked about as much. I think they are uh, they do deserve a comeback, not only because Hamilton was a Federalist, right. and now we have a Hamilton musical, but because they have a lot of in- other interesting people, and they were wrestling with this question of religion in public life. And so that is kind of religion and politics intersection is what's been uh, driving uh, my scholarly investigations. So uh, that that was really useful. I I keep coming back to those themes. And then as a subsequent project, uh, I made contact with Professor Carl Esbeck, as you mentioned. He's at the University of Missouri Law School. Uh, The idea actually originated with him, but then we worked it out as a law professor and a historian to say, well, let's look at religious disestablishment in the states to tell each state's story on its own. So, Jonathan, uh, this book, am I right? There was a book similar to this that talked about the ratification of the Constitution in the various states, but there had there had never been. It's surprising to me. It seems like such a simple, necessary concept, but there had never been a book quite like this before. That's right. There have been books that have have looked at uh, American religious liberty in general, and usually they'd give maybe a chapter to the whole disestablishment process because, of course, uh, what really matters is how religion is operating at the state level. Right? Once you have the First Amendment, uh, there's never any question about any type of national establishment. But even at that point, there were many states that did have official state churches. 
Yeah, so let's jump into to the book. It's a it's a big book. It's over four hundred pages, but you really nicely in the introduction. Uh, I, I appreciate it. You you front load all, all of the good conclusions. So if somebody doesn't make it all the way through, you give a number of findings and summarize things well, and then they can go through the individual states. So we don't have time to go through all the states, but I do just want to walk through some of this. And we'll start in the introduction then. So give us a definition. What are we talking about? What is establishment as we talk about churches, and what is disestablishment other than, you know, the, 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 the best... Scrabble word score anti disestablishmentarianism the the longest word in the English language we're told what what do these terms mean uh, this this would be a, a situation where actually using anti disestablishmentarianism would be exactly appropriate yeah, that's right so I mean, for an establishment it is giving it is making one official uh, usually denomination the official church for the entire, in this case, uh, colony then, then state. So we might, it's more than just, oh, you get a certificate, you know, you, you are approved. There, there are a lot of elements to what might go into being the official church, right? And I, I'd, I'd underline, this is not just, uh, in most cases, it's not all Christian churches are welcome, but this is the Anglican church is the official church, or in New England, the congregational church is the official church. So an official church, the first step that most people think about is funding, right? It goes to money. So uh, this specific church would receive their financial support from the state. Now, of course, how are you going to get that money from the state? Well, the people, the citizens are going to be taxed to support that church. So the financial support is usually the, the biggest one and, and might uh, raise the, the most questions, right, when, when people's pocketbooks right. are involved. But then there are others. Uh, it might go to uh, licensure, right? Who counts as an official minister, right? You would have to get a, min- a license to preach. Um, it might have to go to uh, mandating w- attendance at worship. Definitely happens that way in the 1600s, less so in the 1700s. But uh, mandating worship or where you could meet to worship that everyone would have to get approved. Uh, these official churches would support public functions, uh, whether that would be caring for the poor, right? You might think public uh, assistance or welfare to go through those churches, uh, but they might be the keepers of public records, right? The, this event, uh, a birth, a marriage, a funeral, doesn't count unless it's registered with the official church. And along with that, uh, in some colonies, uh, in some states, uh, marriages, for instance, mm-hmm. were only counted as official if performed in a an official church. And then often the other side of this would be for religious office holders, they would have to give an oath that they supported uh, usually that official church. Maybe it was a Christian oath in general, but often it was specifically in line with, say, the 39 Articles. Yeah, that's a great summary, and I know you do that in the, in the introduction, just what establishment means. It's financial. Sometimes it means that tests for, for creeds and confessions over the church and uh, can be uh, setting aside Sunday often was, in fact, 
we'll talk about long into the history of America. That was one of the last things to go away. Even when establishments did, it was still, well, obviously we should have some Sabbath laws, people still concluded. So it, it, as a, uh, ask you a historical question, because you raise a really good point. Establishment is of a, a denomination. It's a Presbyterian or an Anglican or a Congregational or in Europe, a Catholic. H- has there ever been a Christian generic establishment or a, a pan-Protestant generic establishment? This is, a, this is an interesting question. There were a few attempts uh, in, the, in the revolutionary period, and I think the best documented in our chapter came from South Carolina, where in its, its first decade of independence, so in the 1780s, uh, South Carolina – uh, provided that, uh, but then in the 1790s they actually moved away and moved to so disestablishment as well. It didn't last very long. the The other place that's really interesting is in Virginia, where they they were moving or the the proposal was on the table for that plural establishment. And here this was uh, Patrick Henry said maybe the way to ensure religious peace uh, in Virginia is to support all the Christian churches equally. And that was the bill that was being debated, but it was eventually. Uh, voted down because of a lot of debates that maybe we can talk about uh, that James Madison actually right. opposed that then moved to complete disestablishment in Virginia. So there, there weren't very many. And, and that's one of those moments that uh, maybe the, a lost opportunity that makes me think that would have been a really interesting experiment to see other states try a, a plural establishment. It would have had some of the same problems, but it also would have, I think, resolved some of the issues being felt in the 1780s and 1790s. And that raises a really important point, because it's easy for us in the 21st century to to think that the process of disestablishment in the states was a sign of religious or Christian weakness, because we think of Ah, they, they, they must have been mo- – everything was sort of moving. This was a process of secularization, and, and people could make that argument. But it, it wasn't because the Christian denominations or Christianity was weak in America. It was a sign of its strength and its vigor, namely that the, the Presbyterians and the Baptists weren't really happy in Virginia that the Anglicans had the established religion. And this is what you find, too, in Europe. The, the now 17th century, early 18th century Europe isn't at all what, you know, it's not nearly as far as the American colonies are going to go. But they're with Puffendorf, with Locke, they're starting to talk about a lot about toleration. And that impetus is coming from Protestant nations, the, the first ones to say, hey, we need to really look at how we're doing this establishment thing come from Protestants who are uh, 1685, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, they're, they're nervous about what's happening in the Catholic world. And so, just say a little bit more about that, and you can talk about Europe, or you can talk about, you know, our specialty here in the United States, that disestablishment was not because Christianity was waning, it was because so many Christians were insistent on their understanding of Christianity, and they needed some way to get along with one another. I think I think that's that's really apt. So the again, for our listeners, the the process of 
disestablishment is then this process by which uh, governmentally there's an unwinding of an official church and moving to a position of uh, equal treatment for multiple denominations or religious liberty for all all churches. And I think we really should underline this point that the process of disestablishment did not uh, – Come up, should not be read as a move of secularization. Uh, that it was it was not uh, simply mm. the Enlightenment, as some people right. would would say. Right? We need to nuance that a lot. There is uh, some elements of enlightened thought that that would support this. Uh, you mentioned Locke's letter on toleration; It'd be very useful. That ends up supporting uh, these moves, but. What we found, again, so this is not just an assertion, but this is what the data bears out, is that, in fact, in the, in the states, in the United States, it was the churches, it was the other dissenting Protestant groups who said th this is a better arrangement, that, that we, we would just prefer equal treatment, not, not funding, but equal treatment of, of all the churches. And so they're bringing a Protestant principle to bear on this. And I think this is present uh, in, again, in individual states, and we could tell individual state stories. Um, that's definitely true in Virginia. Virginia is an interesting story we could unpack, but also at, at the national level, as, as the First Amendment is being debated, that all of this arises from a Protestant principle. The language that they use primarily was the right of private judgment that is going to limit uh, what the state can do. And we would say the right of conscience would say it's better for the state not to interfere with these religious matters. Yeah, I want to jump back to, in a moment, to some of the, the big picture findings. But you, you've mentioned Virginia a, a couple of times. So let's let's go there. We won't have time to do all the states, but Virginia, right. the most important state, uh, Massachusetts would differ, but the, the largest, the leading state. And uh, th this is one of Carl's chapters, Carl Esbeck in here, and he does a nice job of summarizing, and you can say more about this, but you have James Madison, his famous memorial, but it's not just Madison, it's the Presbyterians and the Baptists in Virginia, as well as Madison, who are making arguments in their petitions for some form of disestablishment. And... Uh, in this chapter, they're broken down, summarize historical arguments in the petition, and he lists about eight of those, basically saying, um, this hasn't worked. Uh, and then, to your point, religious arguments, and in the chapter, they're summarized 10 of these. So, these are arguments from Mark 12, 17, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, talks about the, con the conscience, the, the limits that government should have. Christianity does not need the support of civil government. Christ said his kingdom is not of this world. Now, Christians can and did disagree with these, but it is really worth seeing they were making Christian arguments. They, they, they were arguing from verses and Christian principles, and some disagreed, but, but they were trying to make religious arguments for disestablishment. And then there's, he lists six different governmental or prudential arguments. So, talk a little bit more about how this went down in Virginia and how important it was. I know Virginia, some, the older model is Virginia was the model for everyone else, and, and, and here you argue, that's eh, not quite the case, but it certainly was, was very important. And how did the argument play out among those different groups? 
Right. We, we do want to be careful there to, because uh, although uh, Virginia, uh, Virginia's experience did have some influence, it didn't have the definitive influence that often is treated. And, and so we were actually trying to make that point uh, because Supreme Court cases, um, both there's a case called Reynolds in the 19th century. There's a case called Everson in the 20th century. Both of these basically said, well, if you look to Virginia, you understand all the theory of what's going on. And we said, we want to say, wait, 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 let's look at all of the states to understand what, uh, what, what is going on. And, and to say each has its own bearing or ability to comment on the disestablishment project. It's not just Virginia. So that's, that, I'm going to start with that caveat. But it, I still think Virginia is an interesting story. And because it does produce some great writing on all sides, it's worth talking about. So that's why the, that is a significant chapter in the book. So in the 1780s, as Virginia is coming out of the revolution, they do have to wrestle with what's the place of our official Anglican church, right? Which had been very strong in the colonial period. Um, but also, let's point out, strong enough that it uh, oppressed right. uh, Presbyterians and Baptists. So when we say not just strong, there was support, but there was also uh, the real hand of the state that would lock uh, Baptist clergy up, and so this would this this makes them not very happy. Maybe in the post-revolutionary setting, there's a way to relieve these these pressures, right? To to give, and and I think you're exactly right. Presbyterians full standing as well, right? This would be a real interest there. As I mentioned, so Patrick Henry in the legislature. Uh, puts this uh, idea on the table. Let's move from a uh, from a Anglican establishment to a plural establishment. Let's give all the churches opportunities to receive tax funding and official status. And it almost passes. And so this is this is that moment where it's like, oh, that would have been interesting to see what would have happened. James Madison, who's also in the legislature at this point, thinks this is a bad idea. And let's remember Madison, who had studied at Princeton with John Witherspoon and now is trying to apply some of those insights in Virginia. He thinks this is a bad idea. And so he starts, a, first of all, a delaying campaign. And then he begins to organize these petition drives. Like, and what you see is multiple groups sending petitions to the Virginia legislature saying, no, thank you. We'd prefer just full religious liberty. And Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance is the most famous. It's I think everyone should read that. But in fact, religious groups, Presbyterians actually signed signed petitions with larger numbers mm. than Madison's. So this is really worth paying attention to. Oh, it's religious reasoning that that gets involved as to why an establishment is not such a good idea in Virginia. So there's a delay. It's delayed for another legislative session. In the process, James Madison actually campaigns on behalf of Patrick Henry to make him governor so he can no longer advance his bill. And then when they come back, it's Madison with a text written by Thomas Jefferson to, as they say, establish religious freedom in Virginia. So then you move to this uh, disestablishment 
stance in Virginia. And so, again, historians have looked at this and said, oh, you see, it's all about Jefferson and Madison. It's all these people who have been to college, who have imbibed the Enlightenment, who right. want disestablishment. And the better history is to say they are working very closely with, again, Presbyterian elders and Baptist leaders like John Leland to make sure this happens. So when Jefferson writes his famous phrase, uh, the wall of separation between church and state, not in the Constitution, but in that letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. Uh, and we can argue that that's maybe not the best interpretation of the Constitution, but it's very influential. Jefferson says it. When the Baptists heard that, were they excited about Jefferson making that claim? Right. And so just to give people a, a chronology, the letter to the Danbury Baptists is 1801 when Jefferson is president, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, he's, he's reflecting back uh, 15 years after the debate over religious freedom in Virginia. Uh, so for the most part, we, we're, we think the Baptists in uh, Connecticut were not happy uh, to hear that because uh, they don't record uh, the letter in their official minutes. Hmm. So, so th they appreciate his support for the disestablishment project in Connecticut, which is what he's trying to advance, but they're not endorsing uh, that full interpretation. Right, that that whole wall metaphor that Jefferson uses. Um, interesting note: Roger Williams had had talked about a, a wall to protect the church, but it seems like most people in the early Republic, the New Nation, saw it more so as only a one-way wall. Right. right, that that it should protect the church from governmental interference, but not at all keep uh, Christians and even church bodies from commenting on on politics. So. Whereas I think Jefferson wants to sideline religious involvement, the, the churches almost universally would disagree with that. Yeah, because the Baptists, by and large, were supportive of, of Jefferson, and that may seem strange from our vantage, but Jefferson, you know, his Jefferson Bible, but, but the Baptists appreciated that he w was not for establishment, and for Baptists— you know, even more so than Presbyterians, they were the ones who were, I say this with all love and respect to my Baptist friends, they were always sort of at the bottom of the ecclesiastical ladder. I mean, if somebody was going to be uh, oppressed, it, it was going to be the Baptists. Now, it, in other centuries, others, but for our purposes, it was the Baptists. So they were, they were pleased with that. But to your point, the wall metaphor seemed to suggest... Um, yeah, we're glad for the tyranny of government to not tell us what to do, but this doesn't at all mean, no, no, in fact, hardly anybody thinks that Christianity should not have a privileged place in the American Republic. And this is where the record of history is, it's very difficult to make it just one thing or another in terms of contemporary debates, because... We can look with these very stark polarities that the only way to really have, you know, Christian, either you have an established Christian state or Christian nationalism, or you have some very official magistrate uh, enacting these things on behalf of your denomination, or, well, you just have to, you know, celebrate Drag Queen, queen Story Hour, and there's really nothing in between. But... I think the story of especially the early American Republic is 
okay, this disestablishment is happening, and we never had an establishment at the federal level, and the First Amendment makes it plain that that won't happen. And yet, even as disestablishment happens over 50 years, Protestant Christianity is still extremely, what should we say, privileged? Um, There are still often tests, you know, oaths of office. There's still, you have to prove that you're a Protestant, and that gets less and less, and it becomes more, you have to prove that you're, you're at least you know, believe in God and believe in providence, and because atheists, you couldn't trust them to care about morality. Uh, and there's Sunday laws. So it wouldn't at all be true, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, wouldn't it all be true to say that over these 50 years, Christian influence is just waning across the board? Uh, they continue to assume, even as there's no established church in each of these states, that, well, but we are kind of a Protestant people. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of good points there, and and feel free uh, to push back on what's overstated. <laughs> I know Maryland would say, "Hey, we got Catholics here." Right. That, that's a different. That's a, a related question because often uh, the religious freedom and toleration it was just kind of assumed. Well, mm, but maybe not really for Catholics because they're in right. a, they're in allegiance to a foreign power, and we can't really trust them. Although just just on that point, uh, through the revolution into the early republic, the, the small number of Catholics do demonstrate their patriotism, right, and so right. there's there's not a lot of uh, sense of tension there. So for the most part, uh, a lot of good points. Let's try to unpack them. One of them would be, yes, there is growing Christian influence. Although I I would just underline the reason they needed a greater movement, a second great awakening, is because there were challenges. Right. The, the 1790s especially did see an, an influx of European religious skepticism. Uh, people, churches were disrupted following the revolution. So there was a need for organization, for renewal of mm-hmm. the churches. And that renewal movement uh, really takes off in the late 1790s into the, into the 1800s and then uh, flowing into, into the next several decades. And the way, again, on one hand, uh, the way you do this was more, again, through the churches and culturally, not, not with the arm of the state. And I think that's the disestablishment model. And what we see is uh, the, tr- the churches could get together on this theme or this approach. And so this is also the era of great interdenominational cooperation, uh, people coming together, American Bible Society, American Sunday School Union, American Tract Society to uh, spread the gospel in a lot of different ways and sh- recognizing that that sharing the energy was better than each trying to do it for their own denomination. So cooperation through, through voluntary societies helps to spread that influence. At the same time, and and at the same time, they want to speak to uh, – there, there is appreciation when the politics recognize that the, those Christian commitments. And there could be morals legislation that the churches support. And here, let's point out that, that those disestablished groups like Baptists were quite happy to support that type of legislation. Right. And as long as there was kind of shared recognition of uh, 
of standing for all the denominations, they actually found quite a lot that they could agree on in public life. One of the, the features that may be surprising to folks is that in, in some states, there were actually written in the Constitution or proposed legislation initially that would disallow clergy from serving in state office. So we think of the the religious test going the other way, but this has some precedence in England uh, with the the House of Lords or House of Commons or both, you can correct me. But I know this uh, is in the chapter on North Carolina, and I know it from my Witherspoon studies because there was that proposal in Georgia, and uh, Witherspoon wrote, a really delightful piece arguing against this provision that would disbar clergy from serving in state assemblies and serving in the legislature. And Witherspoon basically says, okay, so if 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 I'm if I preach the gospel and I believe the scriptures and I'm a I'm a member of the clergy, I can't be in the legislature. But if I were to become a, a dissolute drunk and I would be defrocked. and no longer a minister, then you're saying that's exactly the sort of person who ought to serve in the assembly in Georgia. I understand your point. He was was adept at the good sarcasm. So where did this come from? How many states considered this, and did it get in the books, and when did it get removed? Right. So Witherspoon's a great example of this, right? Where Minister, I mean, if if he, if he had been disbar, debarred from going to the Continental Congress, he wouldn't have been there to participate in those debates. Um, so clearly, we we have national examples of ministers involved. Um, for the most part, uh, that doesn't get in place. Although, again, Virginia is an interesting case, right? Where Virginia goes so far as to not only disestablish uh, the the Anglican Church, but to set up a lot of uh, hardship requirements that limit what the churches can do in Virginia. So we would say that's overshooting the mark, where they are limiting uh, the way churches can incorporate, for instance, and also putting these ministerial uh, limitations on on service. And some of those uh, stay in place even into the 20th century. Not many, but, but there are a couple places of that. This whole disestablishment project, do you think this is, again, for better or worse, is this an example of American exceptionalism? I think you say at the beginning, this this was not tried, and to a large degree, at least officially, has not been tried in, in Europe. Uh, is this really unique in America? And if so, how did it and why did it happen here? Right. Well, we would argue that it is a little bit unprecedented, which means we should we should study it. Right. That, that this is a new contribution that that the Americans are making. That the experience that I think grows out of Protestant pluralism, right, the, uh, forces people to say, how can we uh, work and live together within a polity uh, and still keep our our faithful commitment, our faith commitments. So, so that's what they're, they're raising. And again, it's done in a friendly way. So you could say, well, it's different than what France does, which is a secular move, right? The, the laicism of the French revolution, we're not trying to do that. We, the United States are not trying to do that. And of course, to this day, 
England or uh, Norway or Sweden would, would have official churches. So they also have not uh, followed the U.S. in that. So I think the U.S. does have an interesting story to tell, one that I would say is, again, not – so it, it is change. It is maybe even a little revolutionary, but it's not a break. It's, it's not right. so unprecedented because of that, because of those roots that it has in Protestant commitments, right? Those defined Protestant commitments that are driving this, not simply secularism. Uh, that's really good. In the, in the introduction where you have these findings, let me just read, uh, let me just highlight a few of them and you can talk about any or all of them. I won't do all of them. Here's finding number one. Neither the U.S. Constitution nor the First Amendment contributed to the disestablishment process in the original 13 states. So that's a big claim. You're saying this wasn't driven by the First Amendment. Let me give you another one. Finding two, you say, protecting the right of private judgment, uh, that came easily... However, ending the funding, well, that, that, was, that was more difficult. Uh, it, and maybe the people didn't want to be taxed, but that was harder to see that, really, we got to do this all on our own financial back. Uh, finding four, a majority of the colonists who agitated for disestablishment were religious dissenters. We've talked about that. You have 10 of them. Let me go to... Uh, you know, talk about Thomas Jefferson. So you say in nine, religious tests initially were narrow preferences in aid of the state church. And in the first reforms, they were then brought in to embrace more and more Protestants and later all Christians. And then things evolved further and the religious tests were repealed uh, or their underlying purposes moved away. Talk about any or all of those findings. You have 10 of them at the front. Those are just some that stuck out to me. Right. So I think the, the biggest piece that we, that we found and that we, I'd want to underline again is in all of these states, it, it comes from Protestant impulses. And we've talked about that, but I, but I think that, 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 is our, that is our biggest takeaway. Um, one other distinction that, that we might make, of course, is the 50-year process, right? That long yeah. unwinding. So we kind of talked about Virginia. Virginia's in the 1780s. I always love to point out to people that the New England states, uh, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, don't disestablish until the early 19th century, 1818, 1819. And then Massachusetts is the very last one in 1833. Right. Uh, so very clearly, the presence of the First Amendment by itself did not eradicate the possibility of a state church. And so I think that's, that's interesting. And of course, Massachusetts uh, happens because uh, the Unitarians have taken over the Massachusetts establishment. And then it was the Orthodox uh, Trinitarian believers who said, well, hey, maybe it would be better not to be paying for those churches and just to support our own. So they kind of come around to, to that conclusion, too. So it's, it's a long, long process, and it is felt strongly because of, again, multiple Protestant groups all, all being in the same space, right? It's easy to set up an establishment when there's one, one church body. Right, whether that's Anglican or uh, congregational, but it's it's much harder when all of a sudden you're in a colony, now a state that has uh, Lutherans and Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Anglicans uh, all mixed together. So that that reality of pluralism then uh, allows for them to think creatively.
creatively in a way that maintains peace. And then I, th I think we underline, and I think this was uh, established, especially our finding number eight, um, which was kind of beware of those follow-up limitations on the churches, that we really are defining that disestablishment process as moving towards liberty for all the churches and neutrality to the denominations, but not a neutrality between Christianity and secularism. So you, you helpfully walk through, after those findings in the introduction, you go more or less chronologically, how did this happen? So Massachusetts is the last chapter. I want to come back to that. The first chapter, which I was very interested in, is New Jersey, which never had an establishment. And when Witherspoon and others, many you know, very reputable, well-known Presbyterian leaders were a part of the provincial Congress that drew up the Constitution of New Jersey. They did not draw up an establishment. So they didn't have to disestablish, but they never drew one up. And that's important because Witherspoon, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence, and he comes from Scotland where they have a Presbyterian establishment. And you might think if anyone would be strongly agitating for an establishment, it would be somebody like Witherspoon. And I, I, I'm not sure how he came out of establishmentarianism. My hunch, having read everything he's written that's available, is that he was happy to live with it in Scotland, and that's just the waters they swam in, and probably wouldn't have voted to get rid of it in Scotland. And yet he always had a a good, I would say, evangelical kind of ecumenical impulse that when I uh, when he landed in New Jersey and there were many other denominations there, uh, I don't think he felt it necessary to advocate for establishment. So I think he, he probably had more of a prudential judgment around it that, yep, if you got it and you can do it, I don't think it's prohibited, but neither do we think that it's required, would be how I would summarize his thinking. And my, my question for you, Jonathan, is how, how many people were changing their mind on this and how many were just coming to the, the realization, you know, how many would have said, absolutely, I think it's wrong to have an establishment? And how many were saying, you know what, I just don't think it, it works here and I don't think that we can do it effectively, and therefore we need to find a, a better way? That, that's a really good question. I, I, I might, can I ask one question about Witherspoon? Yeah. Um, could part of that also be the battles that he fought within the Scottish establishment yeah. and, and the issues that he saw in Scotland and some, some of those disputes that were dogging him before he came to America? Do you think that might have been part yeah, of yeah. I mean, his he, read on things? That's a really good point. He was more often than not on the losing side of the debates between the evangelicals and the moderate party in Scotland. And, and that's often, uh, just in this whole discussion, gets, I think, under-considered. Even if, even if, say, we could agree we're setting up the Presbyterian colony on Mars, well, but I really want my kind of Presbyterian. I mean, I want the good Presbyterians from my vantage point. So even if you say, now, they don't have liberalism in the same way that we have today. I mean, theological liberalism. But when we come back to Massachusetts, there you have, well, okay, congregationalists, yay. Well, 
Unitarian Congregationalists, Trinitarian Congregationalists. So, yes, I think Witherspoon, certainly, he already had a kind of pan-Protestant sympathy, and when he came to New Jersey, and just, you know, the history of Presbyterianism in this country, it already in 1729 with the Adopting Act, it was already established that Presbyterian ministers, that the the articles in the Confession and the larger catechism relative to the civil magistrate were not to be taken as binding on the ministers. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't full-blown uh, religious freedom, but it was an understanding. I mean, that's early, already 1729. So Witherspoon comes to a place where already the Presbyterians are, are saying, yeah, we're not really on board with the way uh, our European forefathers were thinking about the magistrate. That, that that sounds good. And I was I was going to point this. This would be a really interesting, uh, maybe maybe slightly niche conversation about Presbyterian history. Yeah. But that I feel like the Presbyterians are the ones who could have been swayed either way. Yeah. Uh, where they uh, could have endorsed some establishments. In fact, that was the that was the worry at the national level was that oh, this is going to be a Presbyterian establishment, even as they're saying no, we're not interested in that. But but in in different states, again, Virginia. If they had supported a multiple establishment, then maybe it would have gone forward. Uh, whereas most Baptists are almost entirely opposed to an official recognition just because they've been so persecuted. Right. So I, I do think it is, it is much more of that prudential judgment in most places. Now, I wanted to tell one fascinating story, at least to me, and that happens in Connecticut, right, where a lot of, again, Federalists saw the church establishment as a public recognition of Christianity, as a, as a bulwark against unbelief. And uh, so my story comes from uh, Lyman Beecher, right, very famous minister, um, and he records this even in his uh, autobiography where he says uh, the day that Connecticut disestablished the church, it was the darkest day of his life because he'd grown up in it. And he says, you know, he came home and he says, yeah, he slouches in the corner of his kitchen and he says, you know, I'm weeping for the church. The church in Connecticut is over. But then after he got over that, uh, he reports years later, no, it wasn't the worst thing that happened to the church in Connecticut. It was the best thing that happened to the church of Connecticut because it, he said it did two things. It made them trust God more and it made them be more energetic in pursuing ministry. Uh, so uh, he was able to look back from a vantage point of 10, 20 years on and say, well, we were really concerned, but in the end, it, it served the church better. So I, I think that's a great story to recognize that people really came to embrace that disestablished stance. Yeah, that, that, that's a great anecdote. It leads me to this. Uh, this is in Louisiana, Missouri chapter. Now, this is about Catholicism, but it, it perhaps applies it. Uh, the author writes, the Catholic turnaround lends credence to, to Tocqueville's argument less than two decades later that separating church and state in America benefited Catholicism by freeing priests from political concerns, thereby allowing them to focus on promoting Catholic beliefs. And it, it seems to me you could probably say the same thing uh, about Protestant denominations. Now, again, where we are, we look and we say our Christian beliefs are, are being ushered out of the public square. 
And that would have been none of the founders, even Jefferson. No, no one would have wanted that or envisioned that. It was assumed that you needed virtue, and virtue came from faith, and the faith that's of it's is Christianity of, of some kind or another. So we're from this vantage point saying, no, we, we're trying to find how do we get our arguments back in the public square, and we should. And yet, I think the point you're making, and De Tocqueville makes, is you know one of the blessings was. It kind of got you out of the business of having to uh, run the civil affairs of your state and allowed you then to focus on, because inevitably, the church, if it's established, even if you say, well, the church has the spiritual mission, well, but you're the established church. You're, you're connected to the, the magistrate, and it's connected to you. Inevitably, that church then takes on sort of the caretaker of the politics and the culture, and almost de facto is going to drift away from its theological, spiritual concerns. Did, did, did you see others making that sort of connection, just like the antidote you gave with Lyman Beecher? Right. So we have uh, that that quote from Tocqueville, and uh, there's Tocqueville's reference several points uh, in the in the volume. People people found that well, our studies of disestablishment are laying the groundwork for for Tocqueville's analysis. Mm-hmm. Right where where he says it's it's liberating because it's a, such a different. Uh, experience then again his experience in France where the the Catholic Church was so wrapped up in French politics and here he says the minister here in America Tocqueville says ministers gain more authority because they have a moral stance but they're not engaged in the mm. day-to-day politics so uh, at least in the 19th century Tocqueville found that uh, a much better better approach uh, we're coming to the end here, but I want to go back to, to Massachusetts, and because that's the, the one that takes the longest. Th- this is maybe not a directly a question about disestablishment, but I wonder, Jonathan, I've often asked this myself, other people have asked me it, and you probably have some more specifics you can give. How did Massachusetts, I mean, it's, it's Salem witch trials, and, and that's you know, has its own historiography and often misunderstood, but not a shining moment for the Puritans, no doubt. But you have the, the, the city on a hill, and you have this godly commonwealth, and you think of the Puritans there, and by the, from 1620, by the time you get to the revolutionary period, it is dominated by Unitarians. How did Massachusetts swing to the Unitarians? And then a related question, today we think of Massachusetts as, you know, maybe with California, the most liberal state. I mean, I don't think any—sometimes they elect a, a, you know, a Republican governor who manages to—but usually it's, it's deep blue. We don't think—you know, Massachusetts would be considered some of the hardest ground to plow for church planters in this country. Is, it, is that because Massachusetts became something different or— would someone make the argument that Massachusetts has retained its very morally puritanical uh, ethos, but it's now adopted a different morality for that Puritan strain? Give me your take on Massachusetts and how we went from Puritans to Unitarians to maybe the most the, the most difficult ground for the gospel in the country. 
Right. Well, I, first of all, I should I should be very careful, and I should say I, I love the state of Massachusetts. So I don't want our listeners in, I love in New Massachusetts England. To, there. I met my wife there. I studied there. Too much hate mail. Yes, love Massachusetts. Uh, uh, again, a fascinating long-term story. Um, so appreciate, uh, and in fact, one, one of my graduate school interests was was Puritanism. So I love love digging into their writings that are, uh, again, not only uh, pious but but deeply analytical to on on so much of of life. I would actually suggest that the switch happens after the revolution. Okay. So that that you still have most most acknowledgement is uh, most public talk up to 1776 is is orthodox. Uh, so John Adams is an exception. John Adams is an exception. He 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 is a unique individual all the, the way, way through, even yeah. even religiously. So so uh, you know through Harvard there is uh, some of the you know. Dis- these discussions, it's not out in the general public. Um, I, I would say higher education matters a great deal, right? That people mark the the switch over uh, not to any given individual, but when the board of Harvard decides to appoint Unitarians, right? Uh-huh. And and that's not until the first decade of the 19th century. Okay. Uh, so maybe one point I would just emphasize is. Institutions of education matter quite a bit for public leadership, for cultural leadership. Um, and then, yeah, who 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 guides uh, levers of influence? So, in other words, political structures do matter. So we should we should be aware of that. As to what happens later, again, I feel less comfortable speaking broadly, but uh, I do think that the shifting immigration of the later 19th century really does transform the population base of the state. And so my observation would just be you have multiple levels of cultures present in Massachusetts. They, they, you do have uh, old school Yankees. You have uh, very uh, people who t- trace very closely back to some of these 19th century trends, maybe Unitarian Harvard. But you, but you also have uh, various other ethnic groups who have really enriched the state. And yes, there are definitely some points that, that might be a more secular Puritanism. But there's, there's also uh, people who are not concerned about that at all and just trying to live their their lives, and you also are seeing the high tech sectors uh, in Massachusetts. So uh, no, uh-huh. it would it would just be great to see a renewal and to cheer on uh, people at Gordon and Gordon Conwell and uh, the churches of Massachusetts. Uh, for instance, uh, Park Street Church. Like let's just celebrate what par- the Park Street's presence there on uh, on Boston Common, faithful there for over two hundred years. Although we can say it did get its start in the Second Great Awakening, Wait, responding right. to unity. So it is actually rooted in this very moment. Let me ask a, a last question, and I hope that uh, I'll come visit Samford sometime. You come visit Charlotte. I would love to just continue. Uh, and uh, I want to ask a last question about history in general and how we do history, because here's what you say on page six. The editors firmly instructed authors not to express their thoughts, if any, on history's application to issues that concern church-state relations in the 20th and 21st centuries. I could hear some people saying, and you know this is a very live debate among evangelical historians at the moment, what sort of history should we be doing? I could hear some people say, 
well, wait a minute, we have all these really important issues and we need to be advocates for justice and, and righteousness. And so, of course, we do history with contemporary application in mind. And I would say uh, that's some, yeah, we, we, we do study history to learn things and illuminate the present. And yet I find myself really agreeing with that sentence that I just read in order to, to really the first stage, in order to do history the best way we can, we need to say, let's try to understand them on their own terms, and let's not go digging, first of all, to say, aha, there's something that's going to help me make my point. So why, why did you emphasize that with all of your authors and anything you want to say about the state of, of the historian's guild relative to these issues today? Well, that what you you exactly pick up on that. That was a decided strategy that we had. That we wanted to get the get the past correct. That that we believed it did have an integrity that we wanted to understand. And then any conclusions that people draw, they're welcome to do that. And I could imagine people drawing different conclusions, and that's fine. But we wanted to document and be very careful with what was going on. And so I think this this does go to contemporary debates. Even this, this past several months, there's been a lot of debate over how do we deal with presentism has been the right. – uh, the label or the hook that people have talked about. And th this is something that historians need to be really, I think, conscientious about. And I talk about – I think about it in terms of, of a tightrope because does history have, pres have ties to the present? Of course right. it does, right? We wouldn't be having this conversation if it didn't, right? That, that there are these themes that, that connect, and when I'm teaching, I want students to see those connections. So there are definitely uh, contemporary uh, things to think about in the past. On the other hand, we need to maintain the integrity of the past as we study it, that, that it has a reality of its own that we shouldn't deform by simply bringing our own biases, our own questions to it. We should let its strangeness and its difference instruct us as well. So you can, you can fall off by being too presentist or too antiquarian, and I'm saying that the good historian needs to be grounded in the past and then uh, only tentatively make, make those connections and allow others to make those connections as well. I often think of the, the Quentin Skinner phrase, seeing things their way. Uh, when you do intellectual history and cultural history, you, you want to first of all say, would, would, would the way I'm presenting this make sense to the people I'm talking about? They may disagree with your implications. Inevitably, they may say, you didn't, you didn't get this right. But that's true and should be especially true for the Christian historian. Whether we're speaking about somebody in the 1780s or the 1980s, we ought to be trying to express what they did, why they did it, the things they said in ways that would make sense to themselves— and then if there's further connections to say, and here's our critique on what they did, that's certainly permissible, but only when we've first done that hard work. And that's why I really appreciate what you've done in this book. 
Uh, I'm a bad host in that I was also supposed to mention halfway through the episode, but I'll mention it at the very end, another book uh, from another sponsor, Desiring God. It's a new book coming out by John Piper. I hope to have John on to talk about this book in the new year, uh, Meditations on the Second Coming of Christ, Careful Exegesis, devotional, encouraging, edifying will be available in January. You can pre-order at WTS Books and elsewhere. So I hope to have John on to talk about that because many Christians just sort of, it doesn't loom large in how they think about the world. So I want to mention that book coming up and thank Desiring God for sponsoring. But Jonathan, thank you for being with us again. Let me mention the book. If anyone is watching on YouTube, they can see this. Look at all my notes here. Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American State, 1776-1833. Bless you as you finish up before the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope we can be in the same place at the same time. If you ain't Dutch, well, we still love you. And uh, thanks for being on the program and for joining us today. Thanks thanks so much. And yes, the invitation is open the next time you find yourself in Birmingham. Yeah, that's great. All right. Until next time to our listeners, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.